All right. What's poppin' everyone? KP here, and we have a very special guest today. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Josh Burford. Uh, my pronouns are he, him, and his. I am one of the co-founders of the Invisible Histories Project, which is an LGBTQ archiving and history project based out of Birmingham, Alabama. So thanks for having me. Um, yeah. So uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about your involvement in I2E2? Yeah, so the planning committee approached me, I think it was almost a year ago, to talk about, you know, how we could bring a queer and trans lens into conversations around the conference. And so we talked about art and activism and, you know, what it means for queer Southerners to be involved in a process like this. And so I've been kind of, you know, the sort of queer voice in the room pushing them to think a little bit like, you know, outside the box, which is my job. That's my, my whole job is to do that. So it's been really interesting. I'm looking forward to it. This will be the first time I've presented in person since the pandemic. Oh, awesome. So I'm excited about being in front of humans again. I love <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, talking in front of a screen is fun, but the live audience reaction, it, that that's a great time. Well, and it's, to me, like it's one of the things that technology can't do for us is that the timing is always like a little bit off, <laughs> right? And so you can't gauge how well you're doing. We were talking to a class last week. There were 27 people in the room and the camera, I mean, the room didn't have a camera. So I'm literally talking at the void. And I was like, oh, oof, wow. <laughs> But yeah, I'm excited to be there. Um, this will be the first time I've been to I2E2. And it's just, it's a treat to be able to come up and talk about my work and all the stuff that we're up to. Yeah, that's really awesome. So speaking of your work, do you want to um, talk a little bit about Invisible Histories and kind of like how it came to be? Yeah, so at Invisible Histories Project, we started the conversation in 2015. And we got our 501c3 in 17, um, which I don't know if anyone's ever tried to start a nonprofit before, but it is lengthy and laborious and the least sexy part of starting a nonprofit. <laughs> um, but I had been building LGBT archives since 2009. Um, I built two in Alabama uh, for the University of Alabama while I was teaching queer history there. And then I moved to Charlotte to build an LGBT archive in partnership with UNC Charlotte and the city. And so I spent seven years building collections there and uh, doing exhibits. I even have a tattoo for of an archive box, which people on the podcast can't see, but you know, <laughs> come to I2E2 and you can look at it. Um, <laughs> and, um, and so we, uh, my colleague, Megan Sullivan, who's my co-founder, um, we said one day, you know, we both really like our jobs, but I think we could be doing more. And I said, yeah, I'm really, I'm really interested in coming home to Alabama and doing this like really important work around locating and preserving queer history because we were losing it at a rate that is staggering as people pass away, as things are thrown out, as people clean up and move and all this important history ends up in the trash can. And so Megan said, do you think we could do this for the whole state of Alabama? And I was like, sure, why not? So we developed this model for IHP where we act as an intermediary. We do the work with community people and then we also work with institutions. And so our job is to train and vet institutions that we're working with to make sure that the materials are safe and accessible there, and then work with community people, leaders, groups, event organizers, activists to get their personal group and family histories into collections so that we can turn around and show it to people and inspire you know, new research and higher ed and community organizations and activist trainings and 
when we started, we were going to do it in Alabama. We got a, a grant from the Andrew Mellon Foundation, which we thank them for every day, um, that said, hey, you should do that. Also, you should collect in Mississippi and Georgia. <laughs> so <laughs> now we are collecting in Alabama, Mississippi, and Georgia. And starting next year, we'll be officially collecting in Metro Atlanta and the Florida Panhandle. Cool. So it's a, if it seems like a lot, it's a lot. Um, <laughs> but we have amazing partners. Um, I think we're working with like 15 universities now. We have uh, over a dozen repository partners for archival collections in all three states. Um, amazing volunteers. Our board is really cool. Um, yesterday, I got to work with 25 students in a queer oral history class, which is cool. And so everybody's helping with the work, and IHB is just steering the boat. Yeah, sure and, and to kind of push I2E2 a little bit more for everyone listening, um, he's going to talk, aren't you going to talk a little bit about Invisible Histories in your speech? Yeah, so I'm giving a keynote um, about Invisible Histories project. And awesome. so we'll go into way more de- in depth about like what we're collecting, what we're learning, um, the diversity of the collections and everything from old newspapers to drag queen dresses and the things that we're putting in, the, the challenges of finding homes for drag queen dresses and conservative states, which is cool. Um, and then I'm going to do a training uh, about queer language. And so instead of just like doing the whole alphabet soup game, um, I'm going to come in and try to give people a, a history of how we ended up going from like homosexuals who were <laughs> mentally ill to a, you know, 15 letter alphabet soup with multiple identities under it. And sort of come right. to people's sense of how that happened. Yeah. So um, what's it like being an archivist and how does that kind of tie into your career as an educator? I mean, archiving is, I think, what I was born to do um, in some ways. You know, when I started teaching queer history when I was in grad school, this was back in 2003, you know, I was doing these like big, I was, I, I built a survey class called Modern Gay America. And we were using all these really cool books that I liked, but there was nothing about the South in any of them. It was New York, it was Chicago, it was LA, it was San Francisco, obviously. And my students kept saying, I mean, this is cool, but like, what about Jackson? And what about New Orleans? And what about Birmingham? And I had no answer to any of those questions because I didn't know my own local history. And so I went to school to study archiving because the only way we learn is by going back into the record and reading the original stories and looking at our documents and putting the pieces together. And so I think I've become a better educator because I'm an archivist. Because right. when a student comes to me and says, well, what about trans women in Birmingham? As an archivist, I can then start doing the work to build those collections. And then Invisible Histories and myself and my colleagues, we can kind of give some context to what's happening, like kind of put the pieces in the same order and then let people come in with us and really start to understand the history. Because it's complicated. And we are more often than not completely wrong about what was happening in the queer South from the jump. Right. Because things are just different here. Not better, not worse. We organize differently than they do on the coasts. We have different kinds of communities here where, you know, we're more diverse. There are more black and brown people. There are more Latinx people. There are more trans people in the South. And so we have a different kind of community. And we'll never know that. We That's something I never that. really thought about before, but I, I guess, yeah, that makes sense. So um, what what intrigues you about history? Well, I mean, you know, to me, it's always, I'm not a puzzle person. Mostly I think puzzles are terrible. <laughs> but for me, it's like having this puzzle and you have all the pieces, but you don't have the picture. So you don't know what the hell it's going to be when you're done. 
And so you're just kind of working to kind of put it together. And there's so much memory inside individual people's minds and in their experiences and in their materials. And so what intrigues me about history is how, how much there is to inspire a different kind of future for people. You know, to me, because we're doing queer history, it's living. Like we are collecting the living histories of actual people. Um, and so, you know, even though we have something in the collection from like 1912, that's still a living document within the last you know, 100 or so years. And so, you know, that's, that's so exciting and inspiring to be able to go back and say, man, what can we learn now? Like, what if, how can we apply radical activism from the 60s to 2021? And I think that there's a lot there. And quite frankly, if you don't mind me going on just a smidgest little tangent. Oh, I love tangents. Go, go on. <laughs> well, yourself this, because as a radical queer identified person, our community's history has been hijacked by very small groups within the queer community, mostly wealthy, white, urban, cis, gay people. And that history is told ad nauseum. So you ask people to describe a gay person to you in any place outside of the US, I guarantee you the person's able-bodied white and they're living in New York or Chicago. They are not right. black, they are not in a wheelchair, they're not from Mississippi, they're not working class. And so we have to be able to go back and say, no, 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 we're not saying that's wrong. We're saying it's not fully realized. And so that's what intrigues me is going back and in returning that history to the people who need to benefit from it. Yeah. So how do you, obviously this is the school of the arts. How do you think that history ties into the arts? Oh my, almost completely directly. <laughs> so <laughs> if you, first of all, there's just, there's so many amazing queer artists in the South textile makers, photographers, multimedia, dress designers, potters, and they're in the South, they're doing this amazing work and their art is activism. Every single time you put a photograph into the world of a same-sex couple holding hands or kissing or riding a bike together, that is an act of, act that is an act of radical activism. Every single time they made an AIDS memorial quilt panel and stitched a person's name in it, that is an art, exercise that is an act of historical activism. And so the two things cannot be separated because just the act itself of a person in a, in a position of minority to put their work into the world in whatever medium they are is an act of, it's, it's radical resistance. And so we, I see art as a way for people to express their most inner thoughts and then to feel empowered enough to put those thoughts into the world. Because audience or not, you know, if you're if you're making a collage or you're making a piece of pottery or you're stitching a quilt, like your audience is so much bigger than just the five or six people that watch you make it or the person who purchases it. You could potentially affect an entire community of people. And that's what we need to understand. What frustrates me about art is that you go into art museums, you go to art shows, and you you know, see those little like white squares next to people's art. Why doesn't it say that they're queer on it? Why doesn't it say that they're trans on it? Um, that is a part of their art. It is a part of who they are. And I think what history can do is go back and then fill in those details to really flush out what it means to be a person who is Southern and queer and an artist. And there's so many amazing queer artists in Alabama that I want people to know about. Uh, you know, Doug and Jay Boy, 
who live in Wetumpka, Alabama, this amazing gay couple who are textile artists. They make costumes and dresses. Um, there's an amazing artist in Coleman who goes, his, his moniker is Butch Jr. And his work is like retelling 50s and 60s histories of masculinity. It is so damn good. And it's all on Instagram and he's young and he's doing this radical work situated in history. Um, and so like, I, this is to me, that's what the connectivity is. Yeah, so you kind of actually answered my next question. I was going to ask. <laughs> Sorry, no, that. it's okay. It, it's good. It, it's less time <laughs> I have to talk. <laughs> um, I was going to ask what you think the importance of diversity and inclusion is in a creative community. Do you have anything else you want to touch on with that topic? What's interesting to me is that I feel like art is one of the few fields where you have to like work really hard to get diversity. Now, you do have to work hard to elevate it. So, you know, how often are black and brown artists going into major museums or indigenous people's work or queer people? But the field itself is, is by design made for diversity because every single person is putting their own individual experience onto a canvas or a, or a negative or a, you know, a, a document. And so I don't think you have to try to find it, but I do think you have to work to make certain that the processes that are in place are set up to elevate multiple kinds of voices that art cannot be the sole world of the wealthy artists yeah. cannot be always starving and because of that we have to work harder to elevate those voices and i think that's what we can do when we can you know get beyond the price tag and talk more about like who's at the table yeah that, that's a great answer so do you have anything else you would like to bring up discuss Oh man, I mean, where does one even begin? Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I, I do, I do hope that people, you know, we do our work for queer and trans Southerners. That is why IHP exists. So they are our audience. Um, but that does not mean that a non-queer, non-trans audience can't come and learn. And so I'm hoping that people will look at a topic like queer language or you know queer history and say, man, what can I learn about that to apply to my own life? Um, and I think those two things are not at odds with each other. Um, just because I am building a project for queer people doesn't mean other people can't learn. And so that's what I hope people will do, like sign up and come to I2E2, you know, and then come and talk to me. You know, like I, we don't do that bullcrap thing about like expert nonsense at the podium. Like for me, a podium is just a place for me to lean while I'm talking. And my <laughs> expertise is because I'm probably older than you, which doesn't make me fancy. It just makes me older. <laughs> and so, you know, young people have great ideas that need to be encouraged. And that's what I want people to do. Come to the conference. Let's talk to each other and figure out like what what needs to happen. Like what happens next? Yeah. So uh, do you have anything? I mean, besides I2E2, do you have anything up upcoming or like anything you want to plug like the um, a social media or website or anything? Yeah. So a couple of things. I mean, you should absolutely follow us on all the socials and the whatnot. Um, we are too old for TikTok, so we're not doing <laughs> that. Uh, we do have Facebook and Instagram at Invisible Histories Project. Um, we do occasionally tweet. We are not great about the Twitter, but we are <laughs> I'm definitely trying, um, which is why we have a, a, an amazing um, program director who is coming in to help us with social media. So follow us on the socials. Um, also, invisiblehistory.org is our website. There's some really cool resources there. People can look at collections. Um, and then mark your calendars. Next May, 
that would be 2022 May, we'll have our first Invisible Histories project exhibit um, at an art space in Birmingham. It's called Magic City Memories. And it is going to be a queer history of Birmingham told through uh, a local LGBT newspaper. Hmm. And so it'll be a timeline exhibit that will have um, artifacts and people can come and really get a sense of how we imagine art as a part of what we're doing. So. Right, that's really interesting. Yeah, so everybody's welcome to come, it's free. There's even gonna be a scavenger hunt associated Ooh. with the exhibit. So you can learn about local queer history because that's kind of what we do. So. Yeah, that, that's really cool. <laughs> so um, are you ready for our final segment? Let's do it. All right. So I always say this. We don't have a name for this yet. One day we're going to come up with a name. But for now, <laughs> it's just three fun questions. Right. So the first question, uh, you told me your favorite book is The Naked Sun. But uh, what is your favorite book series? Ooh, ooh. Okay. So my favorite book series is called The Hidden Library Series. Um, oh man, I went, okay, give me a second, I can remember the author's name. The Hidden Library <laughs> series is this like fantasy series about, and again, I know Geek City, but um, it's about this, this interdimensional library whose job it is to keep balance in the multiverse. And so they send these like activist librarians into different universes to help like solve problems and to keep things from falling apart. And it is kooky and weird. And it's got a little bit of everything. It's like a little bit of future, a little bit of steampunk, a little bit of past, a little bit of present. And it is a kick-ass series. And I love it. I've probably read that series 10 times at least. That, that, that sounds really fun. Oh, I think so I'm going to have to good. look that up after this. <laughs> yes, read those books. And the new one's about to come out. It's called The Lost Archive. Ooh. So I'm super pumped about that one. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited. I'm honestly like, I, you've sold me. Um, but read The Naked Sun. I mean... I, Isaac Asimov is a genius, and The Naked Sun is, and I read that book every year, once a year, every year. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> so, um, obviously, I'm sure you know a lot of historical figures. So, who's your favorite obscure historical figure? Like, someone you don't think, like, the general public would know about? Oh, man. Uh, Maxine Doyle Perkins. Um, she was a trans woman who lived in North Carolina in the 1960s. Um, she was described in the newspaper as a notorious woman, which I think is amazing. Like, I've always wanted to be called notorious in print <laughs> by someone. Um, but uh, yeah, Maxine Dole Perkins was, the short version is she was a, a trans performer and sex worker who lived in Charlotte in the mid-1960s. She was arrested in 1965 for public lewdness because she was hooking up with someone that she'd met at a club, a club called Olean's Lounge, by the way. Um, she went to court. The guy that she was arrested with pleaded guilty and he got like community service, but she refused to answer to her dead name in court. And so every single time the judge referred to her by her birth name, she refused to answer until he started calling her Maxine. Hmm. And then she was sentenced to 35 years to life in prison. She only served three years. Um, and then she was retried by a jury of her peers and was found not guilty. So it was the first time anyone in the U.S. had ever challenged what we would now consider a hate crime legislation. And so right. she went in and said, you're only doing this because we're queer. And I think she flies totally under the radar, but she is amazing. I mean, imagine. Yeah, you know, she mean, was that sounds like something that, like, it feels like something I would have heard of, but like, I've never heard that story. Nobody ever has. <laughs> Even people in North Carolina have never heard that story. Like, we only just recently started to recover all the details. She was awesome. That sounds really cool. So this is my favorite question. Are, are you prepared? 
Yes, I'm ready. So what is your go-to dance move? Uh, well, um, probably uh, hands above my head spinning in a circle. <laughs> that's, sort of, that's sort of my go-to. Like if I'm really feeling it, like in that moment in the club and the BPM is just right, then hands above my head. That, that's a great answer. You are actually the first person who like came prepared. Because most of the time it throws people off like that. That actually makes me really happy that you actually like have one. <laughs> I mean, I was in a lot of clubs in my 20s and I can just see myself like <laughs> with my hands over my head. Also, I like the invisible door. Right. Yeah. The invisible door is always really nice. It makes people stop and think. <laughs> so yeah, hands above my head spin in a circle. Yeah. Well, it's been really great talking to you. Thank you so much for agreeing to be our guest. You're probably like, you're the biggest guest I've interviewed. So I'm kind of like, (laughs) thank you. That's so nice. I appreciate it. (laughs) Well, Hey, thank you so much. And everyone make sure to go to I2E2 and hear him speak. Thank you. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Soda Pop Podcast. Make sure to send any feedback to arts at una.edu or to the DMs of any of our social media. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or even YouTube. We hope you enjoyed this episode and don't forget to join us next time.